0: Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's guide to U.S. real estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, Reid Goosens here and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's guide to U.S. real estate. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for dropping by and tuning in and continuing to grow your investing knowledge of U.S. real estate. Each week, we come to you live from Los Angeles, California, talking about all things related to US real estate investing and how you too can successfully break into the US market as an international investor, just like I did. Each episode, we'll be interviewing industry leaders, real estate entrepreneurs, and good old-fashioned go-getters who can help provide you the tools to start successfully investing in the US. So, let's get into today's show. Here with me in the hot seat is William Exeter. G'day, William. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having us. William is the president and CEO of Exeter 1031 Exchange Services, Exeter Fiduciary Services, and Exeter IRR Services, LLC. William has been in the fiduciary service industry since 1980, and he began specializing in real estate tax strategies in 1986 with a specialty emphasis on 1031 exchanges and self-directed IRAs. Exeter 1031 Exchanges is actually a leading national qualified intermediary with over 30 years' experience in advising clients on 1031 exchanges throughout the United States and across the globe. Exeter administers all types of tax-deferred exchange transactions, including forward, reverse, and improvement 1031 exchange structures for real estate investments, personal property, and foreign assets. Well, William, that's a very impressive list of companies that you've founded, all related to deferring taxes for your clients. But before we jump into talking about all things related to 1031 exchanges, can you tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to real estate investing and tax deferral?
1: Good question. You know, it seems like everything we do is related to tax stuff. But uh, I, I suppose the one thing they wouldn't know is uh, my passion or the reason I do this is uh, scuba diving. So we, we have a group of uh, folks, we call ourselves the bad monkey divers, and we uh, go diving all over the world. Uh, so it's a, it's a great little way
0: to, to get away from life for a while. Fantastic. What's, what's been the, the number one dive spot that you've dived in? I think probably my favorite is uh, Cozumel in
1: Mexico. It's close, easy to get to, beautiful diving, beautiful people, beautiful food. I'm a a foodaholic, unfortunately. But my second spot, I think, would be a toss-up between either Bonaire or Palau, both uh, incredible dive spots.
0: Fantastic. Well, William, can you give the lessons a little bit more in-depth look at your background and what motivated you to start your own company and focus on 1031 exchanges in relation to U.S. real estate investing? Kind of a kind of a funny story, I suppose. I was actually controller of a commercial
1: bank up in Los Angeles, and they had started a uh, 1031 exchange qualified intermediary back in the early 80s. The, the attorneys had advised, do not allow the escrow subsidiary to run it. They thought it might be an agency problem, and as it turns out, it, it probably would have been. Uh, so they gave it to me as the controller, and I had absolutely no idea what a 1031 exchange was. And coincidentally, a few months later, uh, UCLA had a a couple-day extension program specifically on 1031 exchanges. So attended that and kind of did a left turn, and that was 31 years ago.
0: (laughs) Mate, that's incredible. Now, the theme of today's show, as people have already realized, is learning about the A to Z of 1031 exchanges. But before we dive into the juicy stuff, William, can you explain to the international investors really what a 1031 exchange is here in the U.S.? Uh, sure. In fact,
1: I, I think uh, we're probably unique to any other country. I don't think any other country has uh, any type of tax strategy, at least that I'm aware of, that's like the 1031 exchange. So the, the 1031 exchange really allows an investor who owns rental or investment real estate to sell that and defer the payment of all the related taxes into property they reinvest in. So it's really a method to stay invested and defer the
0: taxes and why would a taxpayer want to do a 1031 exchange? is it purely from the fact of saving taxes and rolling it into something else or is it more of an investment strategy
1: you know good question there's there's a lot of potential issues there the first one is the 1031 is not always right for everybody so they really need to sit down with their tax advisor and determine you know what is their exposure what kind of taxes are they going to get hit with uh, and then is it appropriate to defer them or, you know, should they recognize them? So it's not always the automatic answer to do a 1031 exchange. But other than that, they, you know, I think a lot of people focus on the taxes and trying to defer them. And and that certainly makes sense. But I think the investor really should look first at the transaction and ask themselves, is this a good business decision? Is it a good economic decision? Uh, Is it the right investment decision for them? And if the answer is yes, and they can also do a 1031 exchange and defer the taxes, then it's a great scenario. I think too many investors focus on the tax consequences and not as much as they should on the business or economic issues.
0: Right. So just in a bit of a layman's terms, if I had a property and I made $100,000 in capital gains uh, and I came to you and said, hey, William. I think I'm, I'm going to be making $100,000 in capital gains, and I want to roll that 100k over into another property. That's sort of what a 1031 exchange is, in, in layman's terms. Is that is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And so the first, uh, you know, we'll have some follow up questions. The first follow up question would be, you know, what's the sale price? What are you selling? So you made a $100,000 profit in capital gains you know, what are you selling? So let's just assume that you bought a single family house, you paid $400,000 for it, now it's worth 500. So you you got the $100,000 profit. So that's exactly it. You've you've paid 400, now it's worth 500, you're going to sell that. And if you had to pay the taxes and could not do a 1031 exchange, then that $100,000 is going to get eaten up approximately by one third when you factor in federal and state taxes.
0: Is the 1031 exchange a loophole in the IRS Revenue Code?
1: Well, it's actually a section in the the, uh, IRS Tax Code. So it's actually part of the tax code. And it, it dates back to 1921. So we've had it in the code in one form or another for a very long period of time. It's been around a long, long time.
0: And this is a bit of a tricky question, and I'm not sure if we would know the answer to this. Maybe you do. Is the history of the 1031 exchange, why was it brought into the IRS Code originally?
1: But if you go back to the early beginnings of the 1031 exchange, you had uh, transactions like exchanges of livestock, exchanges of companies that were not publicly traded, uh, and and how do you value uh, companies or livestock or things like that? You know, what years and years ago? So this was a mechanism that said if if you're trading assets, we're not going to force you to try to value them and pay tax on it. So you're giving up something, you're receiving something, and so you can do it on a tax-deferred basis. And that's really where the origins came from.
0: Okay. And what type of property is eligible for a 1031 exchange?
1: You know, that's an excellent question because there's a lot of misinformation out there on the internet. It boils down to really kind of two items. One is what they call qualified use, and the second is like-kind. And there's lots of misinformation on both of those subjects. So qualified use boils down to any property that is held for rental, uh, so it's producing some kind of an income or cash flow, or any property held for investment, so you bought it and you're looking for capital appreciation. It does not have to produce cash flow, or any property that you buy and use in your trade or your business. So if you buy a little retail shop or an office building or industrial, what have you, all of that would qualify. So anything, it's it's very broad, very wide open in terms of what's qualified use, as long as it's rental investment or business use. And the the second one is the like kind. Even today, we get people who call and say, well, I'm selling a condo, so obviously I have to buy a condo. And that's not true. Uh, Like kind simply means if you're selling real estate, you have to buy real estate.
0: Okay. And so if I have a rental property, what are the requirements to qualify for the 1031 exchange. You might've already touched a little bit more about it, but could you dive a little bit more deeply into what the requirements are? Uh,
1: In fact, uh, we we get a lot of questions about uh, the rental property being owned by something, whether it's an LLC or a partnership or a trust or even individually, what have you. So any person or any type of an entity uh, qualifies for 1031 exchange treatment. So regardless of what type of entity you're working with, uh, you could do a 1031 exchange. For example, even nonprofit groups, in most cases, they can sell the asset and not pay tax. But if the nonprofit organization was in a position where somehow the sale of that property would trigger a capital gain and, we, and would be taxable, they could also do a 1031 exchange. So so any type of person, any type of, of entity qualifies for the 1031.
0: And are there any specific timeframes to execute a 1031 exchange once you sell a rental property?
1: Yes, and that's where it gets a little tricky. With the 1031 exchange, the the timeframes start running with the close of the sale side of the transaction. So when you sell your property that you're giving up or relinquishing, that's going to trigger your deadlines. And you have 45 days to identify what you're going to buy, and you have 180 days to actually complete the acquisition of your property. And It's not 45 plus 180. It's a, a total of 180 days and the initial 45-day identification period is part of that 180 days.
0: So if I identify a property, say I've got property A, I sell it and then I, I have property B and I go into due diligence and I'm, I'm telling the IRS or, or yourself that I've got this property B lined up and I'm under contract on it. But I'm, I'm doing the whole due diligence and I do a bit of inspections and it turns out that the numbers aren't scrubbing up or there's, not, there's a major issue that's going to cost me an arm and a leg. Is it can I then go and try and find property C, or does that mean that it's all over and I have to get the tax uh, hit on you know
1: 33%? If you're still in the 45 day window, then you could certainly go out and find another property and, and identify something else. If you're past the 45 day period, then you're stuck with what you've identified and you have to acquire something on that list. However, with the identification process, you're actually allowed to identify multiple properties depending on which rule you choose to use. So most investors use the three property rule, so you can identify up to three properties. You know, usually they'll identify three with the intent to buy one, and the second and the third are backup, just in case what you describe happens. The challenge in today's market is uh, it's so fast. There's multiple offers. There's bidding wars, et cetera. That if you identify three properties and the property you want falls out of escrow or you can't acquire it for any reason, the second and third properties are probably already gone. So that's always a challenge. And there's other rules where you can identify more property, et cetera, but that kind of gives you a flavor for that.
0: And can we talk a little bit more about how 1031 exchanges can be used as an investment strategy for someone with an existing portfolio? Sure. You know, in a lot of cases, it's used, I say for the most part, the most common
1: structure would be to trade up in value. So perhaps an investor uh, you know, starts off and they buy a single family residential property, rent it for, uh, for say five years. And then at that point, they, they're feeling comfortable and they think, you know, maybe it's time for a, a fourplex or something like that. So they decide, okay, let's sell it. And if they had to sell that house and pay the tax, it's very difficult to trade up into a, a fourplex. So with the 1031, they could of course sell the house defer the taxes, keep all the money working for them in their pocket and and trade into that fourplex. And then five years later, they do the same thing. So it's a way to help them leverage up and keep exchanging up into larger property, more units and provide more cash flow. Now, other strategies might be, uh, well, for example, one might be depreciation. Somebody's owned property for years, you know, 30, 35, 40 years, they have fully depreciated the property. They're no, no longer getting any of the tax benefits. So they may sell that and trade up in value also in order to acquire more cost basis so they can start
0: depreciating the property again. Interesting. It's a, it's another whole topic that we'll be talking about is depreciating assets uh, in real estate and how can that can be used to your advantage. And just to quickly touch on that, does the Exeter Exchange, your business, does that help clients with that depreciating side of the tax strategy as an investment strategy for their portfolio?
1: We, we do. We could certainly walk them through the basics and how it works. Uh, their accountant, of course, would give them the specific information in terms of uh, what their adjusted cost basis is and what they need to do in order to increase their depreciation benefits.
0: Really, just at the end of the day, for those international listeners out there, you buy a property, you get some capital gains on the property, and then you can roll that over into a new property or upscale it, as uh, William was saying, into a larger property to continue to grow your real estate portfolio and your overall wealth, which is helping you grow your long-term wealth. It's, It's really an incredible strategy, and I love it when I first moved to the United States, finding out about it. I've used it once before and hopefully to use it again on another property. So, William, can you explain a little bit more how you work with your international investors with their 1031 exchanges here in the U.S. and internationally?
1: And there's a couple of issues there. There's a couple of moving parts when it's an international or foreign investor. In the United States, we have something called FERPTA. So it's a withholding requirement when there's an international or foreign investor involved. So they need to be aware of that. When they're doing a 1031 exchange, of course, as long as they're trading equal or up in value and they're reinvesting all of their cash, then there is no taxable event. So the FERPTA is just a mechanical process we have to go through where the client has to essentially apply to the IRS for an exemption from withholding. If they don't, then there's a 10% mandatory withholding. Uh, so that's something that complicates a foreign person's 1031 exchange transaction. It can be worked around and worked through. It just takes time and they really need to jump on it immediately when they know they're going to sell a property. Uh, unfortunately, most investors, foreign investors, wait till you know the last week or two, and there's no way to get that certificate in that short period of time. Uh, But there are issues there. So that's something we can help them work through. There's a lot of uh, nuances that they need to be aware of. And we have outside counsel that can also help them with uh, the process, too. But but other than that, the the process of the 1031 exchange is really the same for whether it's being a a domestic or a
0: non-domestic person. Fantastic. So what's the sort of time frame that someone would need to keep in mind if they are an international investor, they're owning a property currently here in the United States. Is it a month? Is it two months that they need to be coming to you and saying, hey, William, I'm about to sell this property. Can you help me with not having the mandatory withholding tax? You know,
1: traditionally, it was a 30 to 60 day process. the The steps have changed a little bit so that it's probably more like a 60 to 90 day process now. Uh, It'll depend on, obviously, some moving parts, so sometimes it could be even longer. Uh, I would say that if if they're considering selling the property, uh, we should sit down and talk to them quickly, find out what's involved, see if they're going to be subject to the FERPTA requirements, and if so, get the process starting. We can't formally file the issue or file the requirements until they've got a signed purchase and sale agreement, but at least we can get the, the process going so they're ready to do it as soon as they have a contract.
0: Fantastic. And I'm going to touch a little bit more on if I was an international investor, I have a property in overseas, um, say in Canada or in Mexico. Is there any, can you do a cross country 1031 exchange or is that not allowed?
1: Uh, you can. Uh, the With the 1031 exchange, it either requires it to be all domestic, which means the property you sell and the property you reinvest in has to be US property, or it has to be all non-domestic or foreign. So It would either be like you could sell in Canada and buy in Canada, or you can sell in Canada and buy in the UK or Mexico or something like that. As long as you're selling and buying foreign property, the 1031 exchange would qualify. So it it really boils down to whether they're going to have a United States tax consequence, and if they do, then the 1031 exchange could help eliminate or defer that.
0: Right. I would assume that, that you're talking about people who are either residents of the United States or, or citizens that would apply to. Because if I was an Australian, for example, and I, had, I purchased a property in Canada and I wanted to, I, I have no ties to the US, so I don't need to do the 1031 exchange. It's really only if you're a green card holder or a passport holder. But that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, with that being said, what's been the biggest learning experience to date that has shaped your success in the US market? Boy, that's a good question. I'd, I'd say after 31 years, I learned something new every
1: week, even after 31 years. So it's a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of little learning experiences, I would think, really add up to the big learning experience, which just is lots of experience. I don't think there's one major thing that I would chalk it up to.
0: Okay. There, and just one quick question. Are there any threats to the 1031 exchange section in the IRS code? There are currently,
1: in fact, every three to five years, we have some kind of a threat that comes up. You know, usually it's a legislative threat where there's a senator or a House member that, you know, kind of approaches it like, well, if we eliminated Section 1031 from the tax code, look at all this tax revenue we could collect. And what they don't realize is that I would say to in today's market with a higher tax rates, maybe even 80 percent of the investors would not sell if they had to pay tax. The reason they sell today is because they can defer the tax and reposition themselves into a bigger, better property, more cash flow, what have you. But if the equation changed and they had to pay tax, they wouldn't sell. They would just hold what they have. So when the legislative branch tries to eliminate this thinking it's a tax generator, it actually turns around where you have nobody selling. Then the title companies, the escrow companies, the brokers, You go all the way down to, you know, termite and pest inspections, et cetera. None of those vendors receive any revenue and they don't pay taxes. And so it actually turns out to be a tax loser for the government. So we do have three threats that are currently active and we've got the lobbyists working on them, et cetera. We have to take it seriously. So anybody who has uh, the, the gumption should contact their senators or their House of Representatives members and let them know it's a bad idea. It will hurt the real estate market. Uh, it will hurt the economy by doing that, and it hurts a lot of people who get revenue from that.
0: That's interesting to say that if they took it away, it would actually have more of a knock-on effect across many sectors rather than just that individual tax, what they pay to the government.
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the uh, there's about 25 groups that have come together and created a coalition, and they actually hired one of the big four CPA firms that did a study on that. They came back with their uh, report about five, six months ago. And it actually said if 1031 exchanges were eliminated, GDP would drop by 0.8%. And to have one section of the tax code have that kind of an impact on GDP uh, would be huge. It's, it's a major reduction.
0: Uh, well, it's, it's really good stuff. Um, it's all interesting. But at the end of the day, 1031 exchanges are around. They're here. International investors have nothing to worry about. And you know, your company would advise all the clients if something was on the horizon that could jeopardize that 1031 exchange, correct?
1: Yes. In fact, we send out a monthly newsletter. So if there's any issues, we we would put that in the newsletter. Any of our clients or prospects who'd like to subscribe can do that. And they would be notified of any of the threats that might be uh, popping up.
0: Fantastic. And William, looking forward, what are you doing to build on your business and grow as a real estate entrepreneur, I guess, as a tax deferral entrepreneur here in the US?
1: Ours is a people business, uh, so we get more sales, more business development, uh, people out there talking to people face to face. I mean, people really want to shake your hand, know who you are, and I think in our world it's critical to have the knowledge. So we're very big on continuing education, always training the people, uh, submitting them to seminars, etc. I mean, you just got to keep building the knowledge base so we can deliver a better product. And then we're also in the process of getting approval for our trust company. So once we get that uh, regulatory approval, we'll be rolling out self-directed IRAs and enhancing the type of 1031 exchanges that we'll be providing.
0: Fantastic. I think I'll have to get you back on to talk about self-directed IRAs. It's another episode. <laughs> but with all that experience in the 1031 exchanges and you know, you're know, you actively dealing with international investors, helping them break into the US real estate market, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips for the US. You ready to get into it? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? You know, from an investing perspective, uh, there's of
1: course lots of goals and objectives out there. A lot of people have their twists. Mine is cash. It's got a cash flow. Markets go up and down. You've got recessions, what have you. If it cash flows, you are much better positioned to withstand any type of a of a
0: change uh, in in market position. Right. And are you actively investing in cash flow deals right now? I do. Yep. Fantastic. What's the most influential tool that you use in your real estate business, and why? Most influential tool. You know, I'm a, I'm a kind of a
1: balanced investor, so I look at a lot of different things. So it's really I think that the APOD form that the CCIM puts out, which is a kind of a ability to evaluate the operations of a property, revenue, expenses, etc., and analyze it from a cash flow perspective.
0: Interesting. I'd love to check that one out. It was. Could you repeat that APOD again? A P O D. Okay, I'll obviously check it. Out. I'll Google it after the show. <laughs> What's the most exciting project you're working on right now?
1: You know, we we've, we've done so many real estate deals. We actually are getting into a lot more personal property deals. And personal property doesn't mean your primary residence. It means non real estate. So those, those are always different and exciting. And what we do, a lot of aircraft exchanges, we're in the process of doing an exchange on a baseball franchise. So the investor owns a single-A baseball franchise and wants to sell his interest and buy into a double-A baseball franchise. So we've done a, a lot of interesting, a lot of fun transactions
0: other than real estate. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's a really interesting to understand that there's more. there's other things you can do with the 1031 exchange besides real estate investment. Absolutely. Yep. Very true. And what's the most influential person in your career today?
1: It's funny. I go way back uh, to when I was probably 21 or 22. And uh, at that time, I was uh, an accountant and uh, reported to a controller of the bank that I worked for. And it was so he was the controller. That was the most influential person I can think of right off bat that you know, had the intelligence, but had the the ethics and the morals and, and the business drive and whatnot that just kind of gave me the foundation that I operate on. What was his name? Carl Zelazowski. Okay. Well, Carl, if you're ever
0: listening out there, most influential person in Williams' career. And what's the best deal that you've done to date?
1: Uh, the best deal personally or or just from a 1031 exchange in perspective? Both uh personally i don't i don't get really flashy so I, I just stick with single families or or small multifamily properties so i don't get uh creative per se I just keep it simple and keep uh, working on cash flow you know corporate we have done a lot of interesting reverse forward or forward reverse combinations so it uh gets real complex we've done uh, probably the most interesting to date i'll I'll give two examples one was a real property uh project uh, It was actually a hotel in downtown San Diego. Uh, it turned out to be a reverse build-the-suit exchange, a lot of complex issues that, that cropped up, but we ended up buying the dirt and the existing structure, uh, holding title to that on behalf of the client. client then had the six months to do the build-out, which, of course, took longer than that, but the exchange was just a six-month project. did the build-out um, and then uh, ended up wrapping up the exchange, and it turned out to be a really nice uh, hotel property downtown uh, San Diego.
0: They got they got the dirt on a 1031 exchange and then they got a construction loan to then go and build the property. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, exactly. And then had to raise the current property and demolish it and then uh, do another ground up construction.
0: And that 1031 exchange, did they buy that property all cash or did they go and get debt to buy the dirt first and then go to get construction loan?
1: On uh, that particular one, they did an all cash purchase of the dirt and then did, uh, did construction financing to do the build outs.
0: That's fantastic. That's a really, really awesome way. And you mentioned briefly about reverse 1031 exchanges. I don't know if you want to go briefly into that and what what that means for people who are thinking about 1031 exchanges. Sure.
1: Those are even more complicated, but the the short, concise version is... Uh, in today's market, the, it, the velocity is very quick. It's very difficult to find property. The inventory is, is short because there's a lot of people out there who are just gobbling whatever's available up. Multiple offers, there's bidding wars, you know, what have you. So it's, if you sell first, you trigger your gain, then you've got the 45 days to identify. And the question is, which you pointed out earlier on, what happens if you can't identify property or you identify it and then you find out there's something wrong with it? For whatever reason you can't acquire the property, then it's it's a failed exchange. It becomes taxable. Well, the reverse exchange is the opposite. It allows you to go out, spend all the time you need to find the right property, make sure it's suitable for you, and then you close on it first. So You're buying first, then you have 45 days to identify what you're going to sell, which you probably already know, so it's a formality. And you have 180 days to sell and close on that sale. So it takes a lot of the risk out of the 1031 exchange process, but it's a lot more complicated, a lot more expensive. Lenders aren't terribly willing to be cooperative with it. So there's
0: more complexities, but it's actually a safer way to do the exchange. Interesting. And what's the best advice you could give to someone who's considering a 1031 exchange? Oh, excellent
1: question. Most people, I think, first start working with their real estate agent or broker and then when they're ready to get involved, they call their exchange company a week or two before closing. And, and that's pretty much it for, for most of the clients. And I think it's really important that the clients have their team. I, I mean, they really need to have their team way before they even consider an exchange. This should be something they consider when they start getting into the real estate uh, investment world. And and their team needs to be that kind of that core team of, of advisors, you know, they're real estate attorney, their tax advisor, the the real estate agent broker, they want to have a good strong uh, relationship there with somebody who really knows investment real estate. You know, the escrow officer, the title company, and then when they're getting ready to you know do the sales and tax deferred exchanges and they need to get a good QI. And a lot of QIs out there are processors, they need somebody who's actually consultative and advisory, which is what we try to do. We can sit down and give them advice. The short answer is get your team together, make sure it's a really good team that knows real estate. And talk to them well before you sign a contract.
0: That's really good advice, establishing your team. And I guess from a 1031 Exchange perspective, all the international listeners out there listening, William's group does cover all that what William was just saying in terms of establishing a team. I know for a fact that William's a good bloke and he will do right by you guys as an international investors here in the US. So William, last question is where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Uh, good question. I'll
1: give you our phone numbers and our website. Uh, the, the home office is in San Diego, so they can call area code 619-239-3091. So again, that's 619-239-3091. Uh, or they can go to our website, which is exeterco.com. So that's dot com.
0: Well, thanks, William. You've given some extremely valuable information on how 1031 exchanges can not only be used to save your money on taxes, but also as an investment strategy. Thanks for dropping by and chatting with us, and we'll catch up soon. My pleasure. Look forward to it. Take care. Well, there you have it. A great introduction into understanding 1031 exchanges and how it can be used to roll over your capital gains from a rental property or even your personal items into a new deal, deferring paying taxes, and using it to as an investment strategy to upscale your investment portfolio. If anyone is currently in the position where a 1031 exchange may be useful, give William and his team a call today. I know they're a little too willing to give advice and to see if a 1031 exchange is advantageous to your investment portfolio. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for any links we mentioned on today's show and a summary of our conversation with William will be posted online. So go to wwwrsmpropertygroupcom forward slash episode five. We'll also be able to find all the links of the previous show under the podcast tab. Well, thanks for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continuing to grow your real estate investing knowledge. I hope you got a lot out of today's show. And to continue the conversation with us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching RSM Property Group. And remember to leave an iTunes review below, as we really do appreciate it, as it helps us grow our community of international investors eager to break into the US. You can find this episode and many more by searching an Aussie's Guide to US Real Estate wherever you podcast. So, until next week, take care, be safe, and remember. Happy investing.